Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It has been more than 40 years since inflation was this bad. 40 years. The lead starts right now. Food, gas, rent, electricity, all seeing stunning price increases. Families forced to choose between buying groceries or having enough gas to get to work. The pain is real, and the jaw-dropping numbers today prove it. Then, the families in Uvalde, Texas, understandably furious and frustrated that they did not get to see the hallway surveillance video before the rest of the world did, and even more so about the 77 minutes of inaction that the video shows. Plus... In some big cities, there will no longer be a Starbucks on every corner. The coffee giant is closing several locations, but not because of slow sales. So is this about worker safety or is it about unionization? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our money lead and horrible news for your wallet. New data today released by the Biden administration shows inflation surging to 9.1%. That is the highest level in more than 40 years, and it means the prices we pay overall are 9.1% higher than they were this time last year. So unless you have benefited from an unlikely 10% raise since then, you now have less money in your pocket than you did a year ago. Much of the increase is driven by gas prices, which we should note have fallen in recent weeks, but they remain insanely high, up nearly 60% in this report. And The increases are felt across a range of categories. Prices on groceries are up more than 10 percent, housing nearly 6 percent. Today, President Biden admitting that inflation is still, quote, unacceptably high. Vice President Harris saying there is no question we still have work to do. Little consolation to the millions of Americans who are struggling to make ends meet due to rising prices across the board. If you're looking for any good news in today's Consumer Price Index report, well, Jason Furman, a former Obama White House top economic advisor, tweeted, there is absolutely nothing good in the CPI report. Let's get straight to CNN business reporter Rahel Solomon. And Rahel, we just went through a few areas where prices have soared. Gases, gas rather, groceries, housing. What other ways is this affecting Americans? Well, Jake, it was an eye-popping figure, certainly much more hot than a lot of economists were expecting. But you don't have to look far in this report to see all of the ways inflation is impacting Americans from uh, energy prices higher by more than 41 percent compared to a year ago. Household cleaning products more than 11 percent apparel and prescription drugs. When you head to the grocery store, well, you can't miss it there either. So on average, food prices are about 10.4 percent higher, as you pointed out, Jake. But then take a look under the hood of that and you can see Cereal and bread, higher by almost 14%. Dairy, 13.5%. And eggs, a shocking 33%. So it is inescapable in this report. As Jason Furman pointed out, it was an ugly report. uh, Very hard to find any silver linings here. And even though this expectation and even though this report was higher than expectations, it is perhaps no surprise to Americans who know and have been feeling inflation is painfully high right now. And Rahel, we noted that that much of the increase was driven by gas prices. We've seen those prices starting to fall. Where, Where do we stand now? 
Yeah, so crude prices and gas prices have been falling since about mid-June, and that has uh, largely been continuing. So when we look at the price of a a gallon of gas about a month ago, uh, a record at about $5 a gallon. Today, looking a lot better, 463. And by the way, Jake, seeing lots of forecasts and expectations that that could go even lower. So that, of course, provides relief for Americans at the pump on the front end. But there is also some hope that if we continue to see declines in gas prices, that could provide some relief on the back end in the sense that companies and businesses, when they see lower fuel prices, uh, that hopefully reduces their costs and they hopefully pass on those cost savings to us as American consumers. And so there's some hope that if we continue to see declines, hopefully that helps on the inflation front. Are there any signs that this is the peak of inflation and that we will start soon seeing prices fall? Well, it, it, it is really hard to find some silver lining. So I actually talked to Mark Zandi, the chief economist at Moody's earlier, because he's been one of the more optimistic economists in terms of whether we avoid a recession. And he pointed me to uh, core CPI, core inflation, essentially being inflation that strips away more volatile categories like energy and food. And that did appear to peak in March. We have seen core inflation uh, start to decline actually since March. And so uh, you have to look hard for a silver lining, Jake. But if there is one, that would be what it is. And the hope is that if we continue to see gas prices fall, we could see that continue to fall in the months ahead. Here's hoping. All right, Rahel Solomon, thank you so much. The soaring prices are forcing some Americans to have to make some really brutal decisions, including digging into their savings just to get by. One California resident telling CNN that if she wants to eat, she cannot afford to drive her car. She has to choose. CNN's Gabe Cohen takes a closer look now at the real world impacts of these record inflation numbers. It's huge. It's every week. Rosita Klein now searches several grocery stores for the cheapest options, an inflation adjustment as her husband battles Parkinson's, making these price hikes far more painful. We are using our savings. Are you nervous about the future? Yes, of course. Inflation in America surged in June, with some of the steepest price hikes from June of last year in places like Baltimore, Miami, Atlanta, Phoenix, and Alaska. The biggest drivers, gasoline, up 60% in a year, and groceries, up 12%, plus the largest monthly rise in rent since 1986. All of those price hikes are straining Karen Martin, a 911 operator near Tampa, Florida, and a single mom raising two sons while making less than 20 bucks an hour. I'm not making ends meet. I'm not making it. I'm spending my savings. Um, I get paid tomorrow and already my whole paycheck is spoken for. And it's the first time in my life I've had to apply for food stamps because I don't know how we're going to continue eating groceries. Consumer sentiment hit a record low last month. As new polling shows, 42% of Americans are struggling to remain where they are financially, nearly double from a year ago, and 85% think the economy is getting worse. Especially after COVID, nobody has money for anything, and now everything goes up higher and higher. It's forcing families to make brutal decisions. It's like, what do you want to eat or you want to deprive? Some foregoing bills or medications, many others turning to assistance programs like food banks. We have seen skyrocketing numbers of people needing food. And unfortunately, we're not getting the same level um, in donations that, that we used to. I try not to let it get to me. You know, I just go day by day. On top of brutal price hikes, Bonita Wesley expects to face a sizable rent hike in the months ahead. Would you be able to afford to stay? No. Oh, no. No, indeed. Not at all. I probably would have to move in with my kids or whatever. But no, not by myself, no.
And Jake, by one estimate, the typical American household is now spending nearly $500 more every month on the same goods and services. So even as gas prices dip, families are still eating so many surging costs, and many of them are telling me their salaries just aren't keeping up. Jake? Gabe Cohen, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is Cecilia Rouse. She's the chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, Cecilia, thanks so much for joining us. I want to ask you about what we just heard in Gabe's piece, quote, what do you want to eat or to drive, unquote? That's the dilemma facing some Americans right now. What, What do you say to that? I say, look, there's no question that inflation is the number one economic challenge we're facing in this country right now. That is why uh, combating inflation is the president's number one priority. So uh, here's, here's what I would say. One is, as you noted in the piece, these data are somewhat backward looking. They, be, they represent the month of June in times when prices are more stable. June tells us about July. In this case, we know, for example, price, gasoline prices have come down almost 40 cents since the peak in June. We know that some other food commodities have come down, wheat, coin, corn. So we know that there have been some changes that would be welcome uh, for the month of July, but that doesn't take away from the fact that prices levels are, are unacceptably high. The president ha- has, uh, you know, he's focused on t- on a couple of things. One is in terms of gas prices and energy prices, he is working to do what he can. It is why we need to get more oil product on the market. It's why he has authorized the historic release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, There's a million barrels a day that are going into the market, uh, working with partners and allies to ensure that that is making a small difference. It's not going to solve the problem, but it is making a, a difference in terms of gasoline prices. Two, he's in the Middle East. He recognizes that we need to ensure that we have a global supply of oil. And so he's working with partners and allies. He welcomes OPEC Mm -hmm. Plus's decision to increase supplies. He has waived the ethanol 15 uh, regulations in order to have more uh, oil available at more reasonable prices. He's calling on the Congress to um, to you know to to waive and to put a a gas price gas tax holiday on. Um, and, and calling on states to do the same. So, so, that, so that's, as you acknowledge also, while he's trying to do all that with gas, and gas prices are down about 40 cents per gallon in the last month, that does not address the fact that groceries and rent are skyrocketing. Absolutely. You know, the, let's, let's talk about rent, which was definitely reflected in today's CPI number. Uh, in, in, the, in the short term, you know, the president is giving the Federal Reserve the space it needs to do what it needs to do to control inflation. The Federal Reserve has the dual mandate of controlling prices while maintaining maximum employment. It is doing what it needs to do. Other presidents have tried to uh, intervene in the Fed's uh, actions. This president has said they're independent. He respects what they need to do. Um, and part of what the Federal Reserve's actions will do, and we're already seeing it, is to, to cool off the housing market, which will find its way into helping with rent. But let's face it, we have a housing shortage in this country. It goes back uh, a decade, and that's why over the medium term and longer term, this president has a plan to increase housing uh, supply in this country because we know how very important it is uh, to ensure that everybody has a, a place to live. Right. So, so let, let me just ask you, because um, the, the, you're talking about uh, possible solutions to this. Uh, the chairman of the Export-Import Bank under President Obama, Fred Hochberg, he wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, and he notes that ending Trump's tariffs on Chinese goods, by some estimates, could help U.S. households to the tune of $1,000 a year. 
Is there any reason the Trump tariffs on Chinese goods are still in place other than the fact that Biden's supporting labor unions like those tariffs? So there is a variety of estimates as to what the impact of uh, rolling back the tariffs would have on the price levels. Uh, and we, we understand they would have at least a, a modest effect on price levels. But the president is reviewing the tariffs. It is complicated. It's part of, uh, you know, our relationship with China is part of a geopolitical decision making. But it is uh, part of the tools that the president is considering uh, deploying at this time. You know, I just feel like uh, every month um, one of you nice people from the White House comes on the show to talk about inflation and you talk about these tools uh, in the president's toolkit, and you don't use them. You don't use these tools. Uh, and, you know, there's debating and discussing going on. Uh, yeah. And meanwhile, prices are still going up. Look, the, you know, the president right now is in the Middle East because he wants to uh, try to get as much oil on the market as possible. That is the way that we bring down prices. Oil is set on a global scale. We also recognize that the, the distance between uh, oil production prices and what people pay at the pump is refining. So he's talking to refiners, trying to ensure that they are, they're, they're, they're prepared for the hurricane season so that we keep as much refined product on the market as possible. The, the energy prices are seeping into other goods as well. We understand that. So this is a great time to talk about the rest of the president's economic plans. Right. He wants to work with Congress to reduce prescription prices, uh, utility costs, uh, health care costs. He wants to lower the deficit, which we know also addresses inflation. He so, wants to do so you know, by increasing taxes on the wealthiest uh, individuals and corporations. He needs Congress to do so. He wants to ensure that we're making chips here at home. Part of the price increases is the lack of supply of cars. Uh, and that goes back to our semiconductor chip. And so, so it's, see, you know, Congress needs, a, we need to, we're open and willing. It's a great time for Congress to act on these important economic initiatives. Right. He's the Democratic president and the Congress is controlled by Democrats. So it's not as though you guys don't have each other's phone numbers. Listen, CNN's Caitlin Collins asked President Biden about inflation on December 10th. It's July now, on December 10th. And President Biden told her then that he thought December 10th was the peak of the crisis. Take a listen. And I think you'll see it change uh, um, sooner than quicker, than more rapidly than it will take, than most people think. Every other aspect of the economy is racing ahead. It's doing incredibly well. Now, obviously, the war in Ukraine has happened since then, which is partially to blame for higher gas prices, although Putin's forces were on the border right then. Um, but it just seems clear that the Biden administration has misjudged how bad inflation was going to get for months and months and months. So, look, th there is no question that the war in Ukraine exacerbated the inflation challenge. For, in fact, you can go back to when uh, Putin had uh, troops on the border. And since that time, about 90 percent of the difference between headline uh, CPI and core CPI can be attributed uh, since has that has widened since the war began. Uh, the, the, the inflation we're seeing is due to the pandemic. Uh, and is due to the war. And we're not done with this pandemic. We're now seeing that there may, you know, China is under threat of lockdown again. We, while we have made great progress on many aspects of the supply chain, we're not done with this pandemic. So the Federal Reserve has the primary responsibility of generating price stability and maximum employment. They are starting to make movements. We're starting to see that their changes, their policy movements 
are trying to are seeping into the economy. We're seeing nominal wage increases are moderating. We're seeing a, um, a little bit of moderation in uh, consumer spending, and it's so their their processes are in motion. Uh, we have full faith and confidence that over the coming months that inflation will be coming down. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not going to tell you exactly when the timing. The war in Ukraine is a big unknown, but I can tell you this: we came into these challenges with record growth over last year. We still have a labor market that is very strong mm. um, and household balance sheets. Uh, I understand that they are, are being tapped, but they are stronger than they have typically been going into this kind of rate hike period. So, uh, yes, we face challenges, but we also come at it from a position of relative strength. Cecilia Rouse, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Growing questions about a President Biden handshake slip up in Israel. Was it a slip up? Then, is there trouble brewing at Starbucks? Why the coffee giant is shutting down some of its stores in several big cities? Stay with us. In our world lead, a fist bump instead of a handshake. That was the greeting President Biden gave the Israeli president moments after stepping off Air Force One earlier today. The White House said, that was part of an effort to reduce physical contact due to the new COVID variant ripping throughout the world. And yet the famously hands-on President Biden, who calls himself tactile, obviously has difficulty abiding by this new protocol. Minutes later, shaking hands with the former Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and later in the day, during an emotional and moving moment, uh, clasping the hands of a pair of Holocaust survivors at Yad Vashem. CNN's Caitlin Collins is in Jerusalem, where she tracked President Biden's first full day in Israel and an agenda focused on oil and regional security. President Biden touching down in Israel for a four-day swing through the Middle East. The connection between the Israeli people and the American people is bone deep. It's bone deep. Nearly 50 years after first visiting Israel as a new senator, Biden's first stop as president is focused on oil and security. Every chance to return to this great country where the ancient roots of the Jewish people date back to biblical times is a blessing. Biden greeted by Israeli leaders before getting a briefing on Israel's Iron Dome defense system and making a solemn trip to Yad Vashem where he clasped the hands of Holocaust survivors. The president received a warm welcome, but thornier issues lie ahead for his trip. We'll discuss my continued support, even though I know it's not in the near term a two-state solution. Biden reiterating his support for a two-state solution during a visit also aimed at slowing down Iran's nuclear program. I think it was a gigantic mistake for the last president to get out of the deal. They're closer to a nuclear weapon now than they were before. Biden's visit so tightly choreographed that officials citing COVID-19 indicated he adopted a no-handshake policy ahead of a contentious stop in Saudi Arabia. But Biden quickly returned to glad-handing laying the groundwork for an awkward greeting with the Saudi crown prince accused of sanctioning the murder of dissidents. Will the president be photographed shaking hands with the crown prince or meeting with him while in Saudi? The president will have the opportunity to have a bilateral program that will involve the king, the crown prince. In terms of the precise modalities, I'll leave that to the folks who are actually organizing the trip. And Jake, during the president's interview with Channel 12 here in Israel, he was asked about that gap of what he views 
Israel as and what some of the more progressive members of the Democratic Party do. He answered, Jake, he said that there are a few people who think that. He said, quote, I think they're wrong. I think they're making a mistake. He called Israel a democracy and an ally of the United States. And he said he makes no apologies for his position on that front, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Another big question during President Biden's big trip. How will he acknowledge the Palestinian community? Many Palestinians expressed relief when Biden won the White House over Trump. But as CNN's Hadass Gold reports, almost a year and a half into Biden's presidency, many Palestinians say they still see little results. Five years ago, on his last visit to the White House, the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas made a rare venture into English. Now, Mr. President, with you, we have hope. Several months later, that hope proved to have been terribly misplaced. It is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Under Donald Trump, U.S. policy tilted heavily towards Israel. The Palestinian political office in Washington was closed. The American consulate in Jerusalem, which symbolized U.S.-Palestinian relations, also closed. And almost all economic aid to the Palestinians was switched off. So when Joe Biden won the election, there was great relief among many in the Palestinian community. But that relief has little to show in terms of action. The Biden administration highlights renewed financing. About half a billion dollars, mostly on schools, hospitals, and other humanitarian aid projects. Further $100 million is set to be announced on this trip, including some money for Palestinian hospitals in East Jerusalem. But politically, the White House seems unwilling to pressure Israel over continued expansion of West Bank settlements and weak in the face of Israel's resistance over plans to reopen the consulate in Jerusalem. Hussein Sheikh is one of Abbas's closest aides. The U.S. administration has been talking with us about these issues for more than a year, but nothing has been achieved. Even so, we continue to hope this visit will produce serious outcomes, that it provides hope and a political horizon. Biden's visit to the West Bank will take him not to Ramallah, the headquarters of the Palestinian Authority, but to Bethlehem, just a few miles south of Jerusalem where the president will find it hard to avoid stark reminders of the conflict. One issue that will likely be staring President Biden right in the face, the killing of Shireen Abu Akleh. This giant mural of the Al Jazeera journalist is right on the road you take as you enter Bethlehem. For many here, the U.S. response to the death of the Palestinian-American reporter, shot dead while covering an Israeli military operation, has been inadequate and indicative, they believe, of the U.S.'s unwillingness to force Israel to get serious about peace and bringing an end to occupation. Putting an end to this injustice, putting an end to this impunity, is important because it sheds light, it continues to shed light on the greater picture of what Palestinians continue to endure on a daily basis. From the Palestinian perspective, the overwhelming feeling around the president's visit is one of pessimism. And Jake, while Israel has already offered certain confidence-building measures, such as increasing the work permits for Palestinians from Gaza to be able to work in Israel or increasing uh, building permits, on the ground, Palestinians that you talked to, you say they don't expect much. One Palestinian tour guide I I spoke to said the only real difference he thinks he will feel in his life after this visit is that the roads in Bethlehem will be paved for Biden's motorcade. Jake. Mm. Hadass Gold, thank you so much for that report. Seven weeks. That's how long it's been since that gunman murdered 19 children and two teachers at the Uvalde Elementary School. And now the world is getting to see the police in action. But why aren't the families getting answers? Stay with us. 
International lead now, outrage, understandable outrage over the leak of the disturbing hallway surveillance video from the May 24th Uvalde school massacre where 19 children and two teachers were murdered. The Austin American Statesman newspaper is defending its decision to obtain and publish a four-minute edited version and later the entire 77-minute video. And while many of the victims' families are feeling blindsided by not being able to have seen the video before the rest of the world was able... Questions persist seven weeks after the tragedy as to why officials waited this long to show them the video. Not to mention the weeks of inaccurate or scarce information about the delayed response by police on that horrific day. Let's bring in CNN's Shimon Prokopis. Shimon, uh, what are the victims' families telling you? Well, they're frustrating and that, uh, frustrated, and Jake, that frustration uh, continues. Uh, they were completely blindsided by the release of this video. You know, this video is so disturbing to watch, specifically in the beginning, in the first moments of when this shooting takes place, when you see officers running in. They're going, there's gunfire at that moment. They are going towards the gunfire, but then they stop and they retreat, and then the officers just never gain momentum again families so angry over the release of this video take a listen to what one of the family members had to say it's been up to this point where it's been almost radio silence from the investigation there's been nothing coming out nothing new nothing that we don't know um they told us that the video will be shown to family on sunday and released to the public yet we log on facebook and it's there for the whole world to see Mm. before we even saw it And that's the thing, Jake, here. The family members, they did want this video released. They did want to see it. They wanted to do it together in an organized fashion, have counselors there, clergy members there. They were bracing themselves for this for Sunday. And certainly to see it come out in this way has really, really upset them, Jake. Jamon, the Texas House committee was planning to show the entire video to the families on Sunday, uh, as that gentleman just noted. Are there any plans to to move it up or, or cancel it now that the video has been published? No, they say they are still expecting to have family members there on Sunday in Uvalde where they're going to show it to them. I think they're going to get some tougher questions now as to how this happened because already the members of this community and these families feel so betrayed. They have no trust in the system after being lied to. And really what they feel is that they've been disrespected. So certainly they're going to have a lot more questions for those officials that are going to be present there. Shimon Prokopes, thanks so much. An elementary school hit. Not once, but twice by Russian rockets. We're going to go live to Ukraine next. Stay with us. In our world lead, Russia is ramping up its assault on cities and civilian targets as it attempts to take control over the entire Donbass region. The death toll has risen to 47 following a Russian rocket strike on a five-story apartment building in the Donetsk region of eastern Ukraine. Authorities say the search and rescue operation is still ongoing in what they're calling one of the largest losses of life during this Russian invasion. CNN's Ivan Watson reports now from the ruins of an elementary school hit by a Russian rocket, an act the governor of the region is calling an act of terrorism. This used to be a classroom in school number 60 in the southern Ukrainian city of Mykolaiv. That is until before dawn on Tuesday when what appears to have been a Russian rocket slammed into the building. Nobody was hurt, thankfully, perhaps due to the time of day and it's summer vacation right now. But look what's left. The principal says that this school was constructed more than 100 years ago. It's completely devastated now. 
And the Ukrainian authorities here, they say the same morning the city was hit by nearly two dozen other impacts, including a hospital, which just goes to show that that nothing and nobody really is safe in this conflict zone. This is terrorism. And, and that's it, because it's like a strategy of Russian to scare civilian people, to make panic. What is your message to your own residents when a school can be blown up like this? We will build it. Once again, it will be better than, than it was. The fighting is intensifying on Ukraine's southern front. Ukrainian forces have succeeded in pushing back Russian troops in some areas. and. The Ukrainians also claim to have carried out some strikes deep behind Russian front lines, destroying what they claim are ammunition depots and even a a Russian military uh, officer's position. The Ukrainian government is urging residents of the nearby Russian-occupied city of Kherson to evacuate if they can. They're anticipating even more fighting in the near future. In the meantime, the Russian military continues to lob back long-range munitions at places like Mikolaev. And I want to show you this. The teachers say that some other kind of Russian artillery hit the courtyard of this school back in early April, spraying the walls of the nearby gymnasium with shrapnel. So this school has been hit twice since the Russians invaded Ukraine in February of this year. And with Mikolaev, this city, so close to the front lines, things could get much worse here in the near future. Now, Jake, amid all the suffering and uncertainty here, there may be a ray of hope. That is in the words of the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres after Turkey hosted a meeting attended by delegations, military delegations from both the Ukraine and Russia, as well as the United Nations. And the Turkish uh, government has announced that there was a basic agreement reached by these warring parties at this meeting in Istanbul, which was aimed at trying to find a way to open corridors for Ukrainian grain to be exported. Now, Ukraine is one of the world's biggest producers of wheat. And since the war, since the Russian invasion, Almost all, all of the, the, the seaborne uh, transit and, and travel has been blocked along Ukraine's coast by the Russian Navy, by sea mines. Uh, there appears to be the beginning of an agreement to try to get some of this grain out. The shortage is driving a global food crisis, raising prices that are hitting the world's poorest countries the hardest. Jake. All right, Ivan Watson in Odessa, Ukraine. Thanks so much. Turning to our buried lead, that's what we call stories we don't think are getting enough attention. Bipartisan legislation to give veterans access to care after their exposure to toxic burn pits. That, that legislation, which we've been covering for years now, it was supposed to be on President Biden's desk by last week, but it hit a snag. Burn pits were used to dispose of trash, hazardous materials, and human waste at military sites throughout Iraq and Afghanistan until about 2010. Today, there is some progress on that legislation in Congress. In a few hours, the House is expected to vote on a fix for the issue. Joining us now to explain, Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan. Congresswoman, this was supposed to be a done deal by July 4th, so what's the problem? What's the holdup? Yeah, to be honest with you, the Senate passed... um 
almost the exact version of this bill in a very, very bipartisan way just a couple of weeks ago. But they had sort of a technical error that they needed to fix. They fixed it. We're now voting on this in the House today again. Um, and I think it will shortly go to the president's desk. It wasn't malicious. It wasn't a fight. It was just a technical error. Um, but it really is landmark legislation, particularly for the 9-11 generation of veterans. Um, it's, it's basically some of the biggest stuff we've seen for veteran health care in the past 30 years. And it's basically saying that if you live near one of these burn pits, as everyone did if you served in Iraq and Afghanistan, Somalia, um, that you might be at greater risk for some specific maladies, some cancers. And the VA needs to recognize that exposure, that toxic exposure, and get you the tests and the care that you need. So it's a big deal. In late June, uh, the Senate version of the bill was, was blocked temporarily by Republican Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. He said he opposed the measure because it costs too much money. Take a listen. It's about this budgetary gimmick that's designed to allow hundreds of billions of dollars of additional spending on totally unrelated, who knows what, categories. We've got inflation hitting a 40-year high. We've got a government that's been spending trillions of dollars, too much money, printing the money to spend, and everybody sees it every day at the pump, at the grocery store, everywhere. And what this gimmick does is it makes it possible to spend yet another $400 billion. My understanding is that Senator Toomey cannot stop the bill from passing once it gets to the Senate this time, but... What do you make of his comments and his call for congressional oversight over how the money's spent? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, to me, um, because these are bills have passed by such a bipartisan margin, large margin, um, it's been interesting to watch the divisions between folks in different parties. And um, the economic argument has been thrown out in the House as well. As recently as today, I was on the floor negotiating and debating this bill. Um, and the truth is, I think it comes down to whether you factor in healthcare for our veterans as the cost of sending them to war, right? When we send someone into a combat zone, I believe we have a solemn responsibility to take care of them and their injuries suffered in that service. And so uh, while, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion, um, I'm, it always surprises me when people pop their heads up and have concerns about spending around our veterans, because I think it's part of our moral responsibility. Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin from Michigan, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you bringing us up to date on that important legislation. Thank you. Returning to our politics lead, a sign of the changing times at the U.S. Capitol, a statue of civil rights pioneer and educator Mary McLeod Bethune was unveiled today in the Capitol's National Statuary Hall. Her statue, representing the state of Florida, replaces one of Confederate General Edmund Kirby Smith and good riddance. It's also, as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis points out, the very first state commission statue of a black American to be put in Statuary Hall. Mary McLeod Bethune lived from 1875 to 1955. Her statue includes a mortarboard cap and gown because she is, among other things, the founder of a school for women, which is now Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona Beach. We should note that, sadly, states including Mississippi and Georgia and others still have statues of Confederate traitors honored in Statuary Hall. Maybe time to follow Florida's lead, folks. Coming up, Starbucks says they're closing a bunch of stores because of worker safety, but is this about something more? Stay with us. In our money lead now, keeping stores safe is too tall an order for some Starbucks locations. The company says it is closing 16 stores because of a high volume of challenging incidents 
Locations being shattered are in cities spread across the east and west coast, including in Union Station here in Washington, D.C. This all comes as the company looks to reinvent itself as workers continue to vote to unionize throughout the country. CNN business correspondent Allison Kozak joins us now live. Allison, what is Starbucks saying about why these stores aren't safe? Jake, Starbucks is saying that it's closing those 16 locations because of a high volume of challenging incidents that are making it unsafe to operate at those locations. We do see them going into a little more detail in a company letter that's sent to its partners. Its partners are, are what it calls its employees. And in this, it says in part, it's seeing that its employees are seeing firsthand the challenges facing our communities, personal safety, racism, lack of access to health care, a growing mental health crisis, rising drug use, and more. It goes on to say, with stores in thousands of communities across the country, we know these challenges can, at times, play out within our stores too. Starbucks does say that the move to permanently close these locations is part of a broader effort to revamp uh, the company, uh, something that was outlined in a second letter. This letter actually from its CEO, Howard Schultz, who rejoined the company in April. And he alludes to Starbucks' future. He says, today we find ourselves in a position where we must modernize and transform the Starbucks experience in our stores and recreate an environment that is relevant, welcoming and safe and where we uplift one another with dignity, respect and kindness. Among the changes to help create a safer place to work, Starbucks will now give store managers the authority to limit seating in the cafes or even close restrooms if there are safety concerns. In 2018, Starbucks created an official policy allowing all guests to use cafes and restrooms whether they made a purchase or not. Jake? Hmm. Allison, this comes at the same time there is this big unionization push from many Starbucks employees. Is there any connection between these store closures and that push? Well, you look at, at what's happening now. Two of the 16 store locations that we're talking about, they're already unionized and being shut down. But Starbucks says the closures have nothing to do with the unionization. I did talk with one employee at a unionized Starbucks store who thinks differently. There was also a tweet from the union questioning whether the decision to close one of the unionized locations was made in good faith. However, Starbucks has made it pretty clear it does not want employees to join a union and that it won't guarantee benefits to those who do. And if you look at the tally, as of June 24th, 133 Starbucks stores have been unionized. That encompasses about 3,400 hourly workers. Um, elections are underway at dozens of additional locations as well. But even with that, unionized stores make up only a small fraction of Starbucks company-owned 9,000 stores. Jake. All right, Allison Kozak, thanks so much. You got it. We're now learning what aspects of the January 6th Select Committee investigation the Department of Justice might be focusing on. That story's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, as the United States deals with the most contagious COVID variant to date, the Biden administration is pushing people to get a second booster shot. But how is that going to work if Americans under 50 are still not considered eligible for that fourth dose? Plus, he promised to turn Saudi Arabia into the pariah of the Middle East. But in two days, the president will be visiting that country despite its hideous human rights record. We're going to talk to a 9-11 widow about President Biden's visit there. And leading this hour, next stop, the Justice Department. The January 6th Select House Committee is in talks to share some of its vast trove of material with the DOJ. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson telling CNN the DOJ is focused on transcripts about the fake elector scheme. This, as a different committee member, says the panel needs more evidence to prove its claim that former President Trump may have tried to tamper 
with a witness. As CNN's Manu Raji reports, the latest hearing highlighted the complexities of documenting former President Trump's past transgressions as well as alleged new ones. The January 6th committee promising new evidence to build the case against Donald Trump, this time focusing on his inaction during 187 minutes as the attack unfolded. In the first one or two minutes, I think any other president would have moved very quickly to try to prevent violence and bloodshed and an attack on the Capitol. But more than three hours went by uh, before Donald Trump said much of anything. Next week's hearing, the eighth one in this series, building upon evidence showing how Trump tried to use the power of his government to overturn Joe Biden's victory. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. As he called on his supporters to come to Washington on January 6th. So why did you decide to march to the Capitol? Well, basically, uh, you know, the president, you know, got everybody riled up, told everybody to head on down. So we basically were just following what he said. At Tuesday's hearing, Vice Chair Liz Cheney revealing that Trump tried to call a potential witness, something the committee relayed to the Department of Justice. Let me say one more time, we will take any effort to influence witness testimony very seriously. But today, Chairman Benny Thompson telling CNN that the committee does not plan to depose this potential witness and doesn't know why Trump made the call. You guys have interviewed more than a thousand people. How do you know it had anything to do with your investigation? Well, we don't know uh, because he didn't, the call never went through. And that's, that's a concern that we have is even the attempt raises a question, but it's one that we think is better handled by the Department of Justice. The committee now plans to share information with DOJ, focusing for now on the effort to put forth fake electors and overturn Biden's win. I certainly think that the Justice Department has more than enough evidence to begin an investigation involving the former president. Democrats say DOJ needs to focus on Trump. Do you believe that the Justice Department should at least investigate Donald Trump's actions? Certainly no one is above the law. But Republicans aren't moved. I think the people who are responsible for the riot itself, Manu, are the rioters. Congressman Greg Pence defending his brother, former Vice President Mike Pence, who oversaw the certification of Biden's victory despite the pressure campaign from Trump. The hero that day, okay? He did what he had to do. Does the conduct of the former president alarm you in any way? Not just with your brother, but everything else. I worry about what other people do, all right? <laughs> I, I, I just worry about what I have to do. Now, Benny Thompson also told me that next week's hearing could be the last one before the committee issues its report in the fall, though he cautioned that that plan could change. And as far as that report is concerned, Jake Thompson told me he has not yet made a decision about whether or not he believes the committee should make a criminal referral to the Justice Department to investigate Trump's actions. Jake. All right, Manu Raju, thanks so much. Joining us to discuss, longtime Washington journalist Mark Leibovich. He's the author of the brand new book, Thank you for your servitude, which focuses on the Republican establishment in D.C. who helped enable and continues to help enable former President Trump. Uh, Mark, you called some of those individuals the most pathetic men in America in a piece for The Atlantic where you're a staff writer. And let's let's start off with uh, uh, what you just heard in Manu's piece, because you had uh, Congressman Pence, the brother of former Vice President Pence, uh, you know, very reluctant to criticize Donald Trump. Uh, It's astounding to me, Donald Trump, who put his brother's life in danger. 
It, it really is astounding, and it's completely emblematic of what my whole book is about, which is basically, you know, Donald Trump, without the complicity of the Republican Party, without the constant sycophancy that we see over and over and over again, uh, not only wouldn't be have been in office to begin with, but he wouldn't be able to have re, you know be been rehabilitated as often as he has been. And and the fact is, these hearings are a nightmare for Republicans. And you know, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell hate having to talk about them, and they've been nowhere to be found around this. And and they could have ended this. They could have ended this right after the election. They could have ended this right after January sixth. And they their path of least resistance or their path, whatever it is has been to continue to try to placate Donald Trump. And I wrote a whole book about this effort and how it sort of became the platform of the Republican Party and looks like it's going to continue to um, into the immediate future. You write in your book, quote, Republicans became the party that made Trump possible, that refused to stop him, even after the U.S. Capitol fell under the control of some madman in a Viking hat. It was always rationalization followed by capitulation and then full surrender, the routine was always numbingly the same, and so was the sad truth at the heart of it. They all knew better. What response have you gotten to your book from members of the Republican establishment in the wake of the, the excerpt coming out and, and now the book being published? You know, it's been very emblematic of everything you hear to this point, which is a lot of sort of silent attaboys. I mean, off the record, uh, you did a really good job. I agree with you on everything, but I can't go public with this because, you know, I don't want to uh, anger Donald Trump. I don't want to get in trouble with my voters and so forth. So it's the same basic two-step uh, cowardice in, in, in both, I guess just cowardice over, overwhelmingly, but also uh, adulation towards Donald Trump in public. Um, it's really contempt in, in private and hoping that this thing just goes away. But as long as no one does anything, it's going to keep going. And some of these folks, as you note on the back of the book, um, there's a quote from Marco Rubio, who I would not say is one of the worst offenders in, in, in Trump world, but he used to be a really harsh critic of Donald Trump and has become mute. And uh, you say, Mark, you mark my words, there will be prominent people in American politics who will spend years explaining to people how they fell into this. This is um, on, uh, talking about Republicans supporting Trump. How do you uh, uh, account for individuals like uh, Cass Cassidy Hutchinson or Alyssa Farah or Olivia Troy, young women who worked in the Trump White House, who are now speaking out on the hideousness of the, the election denialism and the insurrection, and, and all these other men, middle-aged men, old men, yeah. McCarthy, McConnell, et cetera, who know better uh, and haven't shown even an ounce of the courage that these young women have. Yeah, I mean, that to me is one of the powerful things about these hearings, which is that it has cast into such relief the simple you know, courage of just telling the truth and being a patriot that Cassidy Hutchinson, you know, even there's elect, election workers in Georgia, um, you know, Rusty Bowers the, uh, in, in, from Arizona. I mean, just very simple truth telling. And, and it's just in such uh, contrast to everything and every silent, you know, complicity that you see from within the Republican Party. And it's not like it's just here. It's, you know, in England, the conservative party stood up and they said enough Boris Johnson. Now, granted, it's a different system, but there's that example. And out of a political context, even in Ukraine, I mean, you see what a resistance looks like. You see what it's like to actually fight for what is right, what you believe in, and ultimately for your country. And again, this is just so prominently displayed in these hearings in the silence on one hand and the courage on the other hand. I want to read another quote from your book. This is about former Vice President Pence. Quote, Pence was the unquestioned maestro of the top-level symphony of sycophancy. No one did complete submission the way Pence did. 
the hushed voice, the bowed head, and the quivering reverence for my president, this extraordinary man. He was constantly referencing Trump's broad shoulders, which was weird. The former altar boy could always deliver when called upon until uh, the bitter end. Uh, Yesterday, we saw a clip of former White House counsel Pat Cipollone saying that Pence should get the Medal of Freedom for his courage for ultimately certifying the election results, which, of course, was his job. Um, what do you make of the praise that Pence has received? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think, um, you know, Mike Pence did the bare minimum. Um, William Barr did the bare minimum. They were right there till the very end. But I would not underestimate what the bare minimum meant to the country, how important it was. And I guess I've sort of evolved a little bit. I mean, I think, look, it was a it was a massively important courageous act. Uh, it came at great risk to him, as we now know, and probably will cost him um, I, I assume his his ability to be a nominee of the Republican Party, which he seems to still want to be. But look, I mean, he did what he did in the moment, and I think the country should be grateful for it. I, I also wouldn't go too overboard about you know him being a profile of courage through through much of what went on over the last five years. I mean, I'll give you a presidential medal of, of freedom if you want. Me, I, you know, if I had one to give, uh, I you know I would do a. A, a thorough search first, but I would certainly consider you for having me on. <laughs> I appreciate Very it. Courageous. Well, apparently they're just handing them out now. Uh, be sure to check out Mark Leibovich's new book, Thank You for Your Servitude, available at your favorite bookseller now. Mark, thanks so much. Best of luck with, uh, with the book. You're always one of the best thanks, chroniclers man. of politics uh, today. The day after the Uvalde right. school shooting, the Texas governor praised law enforcement for running towards the gunfire, for being heroic. But... The 77 minutes of hallway surveillance tells a different story. Then, out of control, they stormed the presidential palace and now the prime minister's office. Will a new interim president bring any stability to Sri Lanka? Stay with us. In our national lead, renewed anger over why the Uvalde police spent so much time just standing in the hallway. 77 minutes before taking any serious action to stop the gunman who ultimately killed 19 children and two teachers in Uvalde, Texas, on May 24th. A leaked surveillance video published by the Austin American Statesman newspaper sparking more questions today about the lack of urgency and lack of transparency by police. CNN's Rosa Flores takes us through how the officials responded that awful day. Disturbing surveillance video released by the Austin American Statesman showing just some of the law enforcement's response to the Uvalde school shooting, setting off a chain of angry reactions from families and officials today. The hallway video begins as the gunman enters Robb Elementary School on May 24th. A teacher can be heard calling 911. Then gunshots. CNN is muting the sound of the deadly gunfire. The surveillance video shows the police responding three minutes after the gunman enters the school with their weapons drawn while shots are still being fired. Some rushing towards the classrooms, other officers holding back. Police response on this day was horrible. Uh, They all chose to violate the protocol of the incident of of the mass shooters. The failed law enforcement response on tape contradicting praise for police in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. They showed amazing courage by running toward gunfire for the singular purpose of 
trying to save lives. At 11.36, the husband of teacher Eva Mireles is seen on camera, a lawmaker confirming that his wife contacted him from inside her classroom, saying she had been shot and was dying. Seconds later, more gunfire and police take cover. At 11.52, more officers arrive heavily armed, some with ballistic shields poised to shoot, down the hall from the classrooms where children, some hiding under tables, are waiting for help. We covered our ears so we won't hear the gunshots. One survivor said she called police. I got my teacher's phone and called 911. I told her that we need help and to send the police in, the, in our classroom. At least two children called 911 multiple times during the more than 70 minutes police waited, say authorities. One child telling dispatchers eight or nine students are still alive, leaving the children finding ways to survive. He shot my friend that was next to me, and I thought he was going to come back to the room, so I grabbed the blood and I put it all over me. Back in the hallway at 11.59, more than 23 minutes after the police arrive, the surveillance video shows Border Patrol evacuating someone from a classroom. The details revealed in the video prompting further scrutiny. At 12.09, one officer is seen outside holding keys, raising questions about early reports that law enforcement waited to unlock doors while the doors were unlocked. Then the gunman fires another four shots and police start to move down the hallway again. At 12.35, one officer tries to use a radio that appears not to work. Then at 12.50. 74 minutes after police first arrived, a Border Patrol tactical unit enters the classroom and kills the gunman. Some of the families are now criticizing the release of the video shown before they had a chance to prepare for it. These families didn't deserve it. I don't deserve it. That's a stop to our baby's faces. And we're tired of this. You know, we can't trust anybody anymore. Others say it just compounds their grief. But just watching it and basically I was in the moment. I was in that hallway with that audio and it, it was heartbreaking. Now, the Uvalde mayor is calling for a criminal investigation into the leak of that video. The Austin American Statesman stands by its reporting and it stands uh, for the publishing of that video. All this as we learn more about how it's going to work on Sunday when the Texas House Investigative Committee issues a report to the families first. According to a source close to that committee telling me that the families will get an opportunity to receive the report early in the morning. They will have several hours to review the report, uh, process it, and then they will be meeting in private with lawmakers, with the individuals of this Texas House committee. They will be able to answer questions, ask questions. Um, and then after that, Jake, is when this report will be presented um, in a press conference where reporters will be able to ask questions. Rosa Flores in Uvalde, Texas. Thank you so much. President Biden promised to turn Saudi Arabia into the, quote, pariah of the Middle East, but he's visiting that country Friday. Coming up next, we're going to talk to a 9-11 widow about President Biden's trip. Stay with us. In our world lead, President Biden is in Israel today for the first day of his Middle East trip. Biden started the day in Tel Aviv, where he joined Israel's defense minister for a briefing on the Iron Dome missile defense system. 
Later, he traveled to Jerusalem, where he visited a Holocaust memorial, Yad Vashem, and met with survivors of the Holocaust. This trip comes amid heightened scrutiny, because on Friday, Biden will travel to Saudi Arabia, where he will meet with the Saudi king and his advisors, including Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS. The visit is drawing criticism for lots of reasons, including Saudi Arabia's repeated abuses of human rights, including the murder of U.S. journalist Jamal Khashoggi and the kingdom's role in the 9-11 attacks. With me now, Terry Strada. Her husband died on September 11, 2001. She is the national chair of 9-11 Families United. Terry, good to see you again. So there's been a lot of back and forth from the White House over whether the president would travel to Saudi Arabia, would greet MBS, who U.S. intelligence blamed for the murder of Khashoggi. But now the time is here. Biden is meeting with Saudi Arabia's leaders on Friday. How do you feel? What's your response? Well, I've been really disappointed in the president lately. When he put out his op-ed in the Washington Post, he completely omitted 9-11. He didn't talk about what we're going through and what we've been requesting from him. You know, President Biden claims to be Mr. Empathy. He is the least empathetic president we have had since September 11th. He offered us no words of comfort at the 20th anniversary. He has ignored our letters. He has ignored our requests. We're all over the news, but we get nothing from this president. So we're very, we're going to watch him very closely. We're not going away. When he comes back from his trip, he's going to have to answer to us What did he do in those meetings? Was 9-11 brought up? Is he going to hold the kingdom accountable for the murder of our loved ones? If not, if he chooses to sweep this under the rug, then we're going to ask him, what did you trade for the murder of 3,000 innocent people? What is the story here, Mr. President? You owe us an answer. What do you want him to do in Saudi Arabia when he meets with MBS and, and other rulers there? What exactly are you looking for from the Saudi government? So the president released a lot of documents, many, many U.S. intelligence documents that now show there's evidence confirming that the kingdom was deeply involved in September 11th. So it is the president's obligation to tell the crown prince that he needs to hold his countrymen accountable. The Saudi banks, the Saudi-funded charities, state-run charities, the billionaire Saudi elites, all that were part of the funding for al-Qaeda. There has to be accountability for all of that because that is the pipeline of money that supports terrorism. And if we don't deal with it with him now at this first meeting that he's going to sit down with him, then we have no guarantee that the money will not continue to flow to terrorist organizations and that this country will still be at threat from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So that is really what is at the crux here. How do you protect us going forward? And you do that by dealing with the truth and holding them accountable for the murders of September 11th. You, you mentioned the op-ed that President Biden uh, wrote in the, uh, the, in the Washington Post over the weekend. L- let me read some of that just to, to give his side of why he's going to Saudi Arabia. He says, quote, as president, it is my job to keep our country strong and secure. We have to counter Russia's aggression, put ourselves in the best possible position to com- outcompete China and work for greater stability in the world. To do these things, we have to engage directly with countries that can impact those outcomes. Saudi Arabia is one of them. Uh, what do you say to that? I understand that there's a lot of reasons to sit down and have a conversation with the crown prince. But what my organization, what all the families, the survivors have been trying to get across to this president is that you have to deal with September 11th first because that was such a tragic tragedy in this country. We were brutally attacked and there's been no accountability. There's been no justice to the families. 
and there's been no remorse. And we are very concerned about how do you protect yourselves going forward. We're very concerned about what's going to be written in the history books. We're very concerned that that the crown prince will not stop the flow of money that supports these terrorist organizations if we don't confront him. And now the evidence is there. And that's the difference with this president and any other presidents that sat across from him. The evidence is overwhelming that the kingdom was involved. Not only their agents that they sent over here, but again, with all of their institutions and their citizens that were supporting al-Qaeda, this needs to be addressed first. Our national security depends on a true account of September 11th. Terry Strada, thank you so much. Good to see you as always. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Coming up, the 2024 numbers that Donald Trump might want to pay attention to. Stay with us. In our politics lead, January 6th Committee Chairman Benny Thompson tells CNN that the panel has begun to set up a process to share information with the Justice Department, including interview transcripts related to the effort to put forth fraudulent electors from battleground states that Trump lost. This comes as Vice Chair of the Committee, Liz Cheney, announced that the panel has already flagged a potential case of witness tampering by Donald Trump. Let's discuss with our experts and analysts. Sangwin, let me start with you. We heard from former White House counsel Pat Cipollone and others in the administration yesterday, which highlighted just how many people in the administration in the White House knew that the election was not stolen, that the claims were false. And uh, I guess, you know, one of, the, one of the questions I have is, how come Pat Cipollone were only finding out about this now? I mean, it, it wasn't just political damage. This hurt the United States. It's, it's a good question. And I think what's been, well, one of the many compelling parts about the January 6th hearings is just seeing these people, when they talk to investigators, when they talk to the committee, lay out, the facts saying that the the election was fair, there was no evidence of fraud, and that Joe Biden was duly elected, and just how much this was just kind of carried on behind the scenes. I mean, I, I think it's a, lot, a similar question as, you know, why didn't they resign when a lot of this stuff came out? I think, you know, I would guess that perhaps people like Pat Cipollone felt they needed to kind of stay in there to try to persuade the president. I mean, we saw so much detail about these really heated moments in the Oval Office where you saw a team of people try to persuade other teams of people away from these conspiracies theories. But it's a good question. And it, but, you know, transparency is good. Glad we're getting it out now. Yeah. Um, and that, let's talk about that meeting. December 18th, you have Cipollone and the other White House lawyers coming in. And there's Donald Trump, honestly, with a bunch of unhinged conspiracy theorists, Mike Flynn, uh, Sidney Powell, uh, and on and on. Um, what was your takeaway from that? You know, I mean, the fact that it was allowed to happen, that these people were allowed to come into the White House. There's sort of no uh, gatekeeper there to prevent somebody like Sidney Powell from coming in there. This is a meeting that lasts like four or five hours. Uh, They're screaming. Apparently, there are tears uh, at at some point. I don't know who it was uh, who was crying. And Donald Trump really wanting to make this happen, right? I mean, he kept siding with the crazies because he was saying, oh, well, at least they are giving me a shot, even though the shot involves, you know, seizing voting machines and folks in Venezuela changing uh, the results of of the election. But one of the, I think, the enduring questions is, so that meeting ends, you know, at 12 in the morning, 1 in the morning, uh, and then about 1.48 or so, then he sends that tweet out saying, listen, come to to come to Washington and it's going to be wild. Like, what happened sort of intervening in those minutes that made him send that tweet? You've been, uh, in addition to being formerly a, a Trump advisor, friend, you've been very clear-eyed about the actual uh, conduct sure. of the election. What is it like watching this for you? Yeah, it's tough. So, you know, the, the question, you know, Nia asked earlier is like, how do these people get in there, right? And so 
one person we haven't heard from, and I think is 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 kind of at the pinnacle of all this, is where's the chief of staff to the Mark president of the United States? Yeah. Right? <laughs> the, the chief of staff to the president of the United States is normally the gatekeeper, normally the adult in the room. Normally they wanted the you to do that job at one point, didn't they? Uh, I, you well, wouldn't I, have let <laughs> They did. I, I, I don't know okay. if that's true. It's good that you, did, it's good that you didn't <laughs> take the job. However, right, however the, 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 that is the person who is supposed to say, no, hell no. Right. Once they leave the room, Mr. President, that's, that, that, we're not doing that. That's a terrible idea. You see that with Pat Cipollone, he comes running down the hallway, doesn't even know these people get in there, and says, we're not going to do that. We're not going to let the president go there. We're not going to allow these things to happen. So there were instances where people laid on the tracks to keep very bad things from happening. But that, that, that meeting should have never occurred. Yeah. Right? Right. should have never occurred. The, the, the call to Brad Rathensberger should have never occurred. Mark Meadows placed that call. Right. Right. There might be there might be criminal charges for Donald Trump uh, because of also that. because yeah. of that call. How the head of Overstock.com gets into the White House Oval Office meeting on this and yeah. the discussion of Nest thermostats switching votes is I'm not exactly <laughs> sure what that connection is. But. Yeah, you know the House Republicans uh, are now a couple of them banks and I forget the other one uh, are preparing a uh, a report to be like counter programming that's going to come out at the same time as this uh, January 6th committee report. Uh, to basically talk about failures of security and intelligence at the Capitol on that day. Basically, I, I assume, blaming it on Nancy Pelosi, et cetera. House Republicans are already helping to write the initial report. This is led by Liz Cheney, who last time I checked wasn't exactly a uh, <laughs> strong liberal force in politics, right? Adam Kinzinger is on that committee. There are Republicans that were there that have had an active and leading role in this commission. And in fact, it was the Republican minority leader that decided not to put more people on that commission. So the idea that they're not partaking in this is actually not accurate. And most of the testimony or much of the testimony we've seen over the course of the past several days have been from Republican senior members of this administration. So if they want to start refuting their own leadership, that's up to them. A lot of a lot of. Trump supporters, ardent Trump supporters, have been the witnesses, uh, including yesterday, uh, one of the rioters. Uh, and it was really interesting. I want to play this. This, is, this really illustrates uh, exactly what Donald Trump said when he said that his supporters were so loyal he could go on the Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and they wouldn't, they wouldn't abandon him. Uh, take a listen. I was hanging on every word he was saying. Everything he was putting out, I was following it. I mean, if I was doing it hundreds of thousands or millions of other people are are doing it, or maybe even still doing it. Um, It's like he just said about that, you know, you got people still following and doing that. Who knows what the next election could come out? You know, they could end up being down the same path we are right now. Yeah, but there's still tens of millions of Americans who are still like he was. That's right. I mean, I think the majority of Republicans believe Donald Trump's lies about the election and don't think that Biden is a duly elected president. And we see in state after state, uh, Republicans putting in laws that will essentially make what Donald Trump tried to do in 2020 possible. Not only you know changing laws about who can vote, but who actually counts the votes. Uh, people running in the Commonwealth <laughs> of Pennsylvania. Uh, these are election. Yeah, I was going to say state, but I know you're here. Um, We're both correct. So, yes, yes, exactly. Uh, who would who are who are election deniers and who are saying, listen, he has the power to elect the or, or appoint the Secretary of State. So this is you know in some ways 2020 could be seen as a dry run for something that could happen in 2024. So, Sungman, let's look at this poll from the New York Times and Siena College. It shows that Republican voters' support for Donald Trump has 
waned and splintered right. a bit. Forty-nine percent of Republican primary voters said, say they would vote for Donald Trump for the, as a nominee in 2024. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is a distant second, 25 percent. Then you have Cruz, Pence, Haley, Pompeo in single digits. There are different ways to interpret this poll. One of them is most Republican primary voters don't support Trump. But 49% is still a way to get a nomination. And it also depends on how many people end up running. If there's a giant crew of potential uh, Republican presidential contenders, then sure, Donald Trump could easily emerge victorious depending on how many people are out there. But it will be really interesting to see what political impact the narrative that's coming out of the January 6th hearings have. Because we've heard time and time again that there are a lot of Republican voters who want the Trump policies with that sort of the Trump kind of baggage that we've seen um, and sort of the drama that we've seen unfold from the White House and how much that faction takes hold, I think will be really interesting to watch. In the Do you have a favorite for 2024? Is there anyone you like? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious. I happen to be friends with most of the folks that are running. That's the tough part. Well, right? you're friends with Pompeo. Uh, and Ted Cruz and Ron right. DeSantis and, and, on and on and on. Yeah. And, and, uh, so, so the, the, you haven't picked a horse yet. No, 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 I haven't. Uh, and so the, the question I have to ask is like, and, and the people I think should think about in America is why, so they see all this stuff that's taking place on these hearings, right? And yet there's so many people in America that still would vote for Donald Trump, still love Donald Trump. Why is that? Why do they feel this flawed candidate, they see the flawed person, but they still feel like he's the best guy for them, right? What is it about what Joe Biden and the Democratic Congress is doing in, in the, today in Washington and across the country that makes them feel like Donald Trump's my only choice or he's the best choice for me, right? Mm. Because that's what they're doing. They're, they're, it's not Donald Trump versus nobody. It's Donald Trump versus what's going on right now, right? And I think that's what's happening, right? That's interesting. So, and that, Why do you think it is? I mean, it's not... There are, there are legitimate reasons, right? People think that Washington is, in, is ignoring them. They still think that. They still think They want the, a fighter. They, they, want, mm-hmm. they still want a fighter. They, people do want a fighter. And the challenge is at the moment, you've got a divided country. And so different sides want people fight, a leader that's going to fight for them. What you need to do is change that narrative and recognize that we succeed as a nation when we come together and take on those common challenges. What I would also point out, David, is... Um, as much as there might be uh, an awful lot of Republicans that still want Donald Trump, that polling shows that even with President Biden's challenges, he still beats Donald Trump. So, well, it's within the margin of error, like, but I hear I, 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 would, take, not, I wouldn't be taking that to the bank. I'm just saying, I, I'll, right. I'll, I'll, I'll go with you on that Thanks one. Thanks to one and all. The Biden administration pushing everyone to get a second booster shot, but there's one problem. If you're under 50, we'll tell you what it is. Stay with us. And we're back with our health lead and coronavirus vaccine news for those under 50. White House COVID response coordinator Dr. Ashish Jha says the FDA will have a decision, quote, relatively soon on whether everyone under 50 should get a second booster shot. A decision even more important now, Dr. Jha says, as the highly contagious BA5 variant takes hold in the U.S. Joining us now to discuss CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, I want to play for our viewers exactly what Dr. Jha said about getting another booster shot? Well, so in my mind, everyone over 50, if you have not gotten a shot this year, if it's been six months or longer, you gotta go out there and get that shot. That to me is a no-brainer. Um, for people under 50, you know, FDA is looking at this topic right now and trying to sort out whether they're gonna open that up and they're gonna have a decision on that relatively soon. If it's really that important, what's taken the FDA so long to make this decision for people under 50? Well, I, th- I think a lot of it has to do with when you actually look at that age group under age 50, trying to quantify uh, how much risk they really have. 
By the way, when you listen to Dr. Ja, listen to Dr. Fauci this morning, I think that they're getting closer and closer to actually authorizing these boosters for people under the age of 50. But let me show you quickly, uh, Jake, this graph. You know, when we look at who's most at risk, it's no surprise that people who are the oldest are at risk. So the top line peaks, those are people over the age of 75. The next two lines below that are people between the ages of 65 to 74 and then 50 to 64. So people over the age of 50. Those are where you see the peaks. People younger than 50, uh, it's pretty flat in terms of the incidence of death in people who are vaccinated. So, you know, the, the point really is that you, everyone has pretty good protection with things as they are, but the people who are most going to benefit from the booster based on that data are people over the age of 50. So the, the, that's, that's the risk-reward proposition they're trying to determine here. Dr. Fauci says he's paying close attention to hospitalization numbers because they're ticking up right now. Does this suggest that BA5 can cause serious illness in people who are vaccinated, or is this mostly an issue for those who are unvaccinated or maybe unboosted? Yeah, it's, it's people who are the least, have the least protection, either because they haven't been vaccinated or boosted, and who are older. But I think there is a stark sort of difference here between the unvaccinated and the vaccinated, Jake. I mean, this is something you and I have talked about, and I can just show you this graph here, I, I think, tells an important story. Looking at the likelihood of death, uh, based on vaccination stats. The bottom lines are people who've been vaccinated, maybe not boosted, vaccinated and boosted. Those lines are pretty close together. That black line at the top of the screen, Jake, that is the unvaccinated. So no matter how you look at this data, there is a huge difference between having received no vaccines at all at this point and people who have been vaccinated or vaccinated and boosted. There's a benefit, again, from getting the boosters. You can see that but a, a much bigger benefit from having received a vaccine in the first place. We're nearly two and a half years into this pandemic. Most people have returned to some version of normal life, back in the office, back in restaurants, back at concerts. Uh, but Dr. Michael Mina, who's an epidemiologist, he tells CNN he expects another COVID wave in the fall. Should we be making adjustments in our daily life now in anticipation? I... Look, I, I think so. I mean, I think in some ways the way that we're going to probably be thinking about this is like we think about the weather. You know, the weather, when it rains, you take out your umbrella and you try and keep yourself dry. We know there's a lot of virus out there. Let me show you the, the community map that the CDC puts out, you know, you find on their website. Basically gives you an indication of how much virus there is and also uses hospitalization data. And this has gotten a lot more red over the past few months. There's a lot more virus out there. But if you're just like asking the question, how likely am I to be exposed to this virus if I'm out and about? Then you'd look at the transmission map. And if you look at the transmission map, it is basically almost entirely red. No matter where you are basically in the country, there is a lot of virus out there. Now, Jake, again, uh, if you're vaccinated, boosted, you're protected against serious illness, uh, protected against death, if you're up to date on those vaccinations. But I will say, you know, the emerging evidence of just getting infected and reinfected, that's a cumulative risk, Jake. So, you know, even if you're somebody who's not a big risk from a single infection, if you're getting infected over and over again, that's a problem. And that's why I think the masks and ventilation and trying to do events outdoors, that's why it's still important when you look at those maps. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Coming up, out of control. They stormed the presidential palace and now the prime minister's office. Will a new interim president bring any stability to Sri Lanka? Stay with us. 
continued chaos in Sri Lanka after protesters breached the prime minister's office. Hundreds of demonstrators are seen storming the prime minister's compound after the president fled the country and named the prime minister the acting leader. CNN's Will Ripley joins us now live. Will, what is in Sri Lanka now? Well, you have this acting president who was the prime minister, the prime minister that these angry mobs demanded should resign. And yet now he's the one in charge because the president fled to the Maldives on a military plane and he appointed him the guy who's now running the show. And so he has called a meeting of senior military officials and ordered them to restore law and order. Uh, They've also started deploying water cannons, tear gas, and there have been dozens of injuries, at least 75 people injured in scuffles outside the prime minister's office just yesterday. But keep in mind, these crowds have been growing more brazen. They breached and occupied the prime minister's office. They're still occupying the presidential palace, still swimming in the pool, working out at the gym and, you know, demanding that this government, including the acting president, step down. Now, what will happen in the coming days? That's really anyone's guess, Jake. Is there any idea of where this is all headed? It could go one of two ways. There could be a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, you know, the acting president could follow through on the on the pledge that he made to resign. They could elect a new government that people accept as legitimate and credible, a new government that can start to tackle Sri Lanka's massive financial crisis, more than $50 billion in debt. People's living expenses have tripled in recent months. They can't afford food, medicine or fuel, and there's not much of it in the country anyway. Or this could descend into further chaos and there could be a violent suppression because the military seems to be on the side right now of the government that's in control. So there's a lot of human rights watchers who are worried that this could turn into real bloodshed, Jake. Well, Ripley, thanks so much. Appreciate it. In our pop culture lead, maybe they were trying to afford life in the fast lane. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office just indicted three men for possessing and trying to sell Don Henley's handwritten lyrics and notes for the Eagles Hotel California album. Welcome to the Hotel California. Such a lovely place, such a lovely place, such a lovely place. The hundred or so pages were stolen in the 1970s. They're valued at an estimated million dollars. The indictment alleges that one of the defendants bought them in 2005 and the three plotted to sell them at auction houses. Attorneys for the three deny all the allegations. A hearing is set for October, as Henley once sang. Bring your alibis. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, at Jake Tapper, or tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room, but it's not next door. It's all the way in the Holy Land of Israel. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 